welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Pleased to bring a um, an episode this week talking a little impeachment. My guest this week is uh, someone who literally was in the middle of the Nixon impeachment as a congresswoman, the youngest congresswoman ever elected to Congress at the time, Elizabeth Holtzman from New York. She uh, she has a lot to say about what's going on with impeachment, and I just thought it would be interesting to have her perspective, considering she literally was there voting um, during the impeachment proceedings back in the 1970s. So stay tuned for my conversation with Elizabeth Holtzman, former congresswoman. She's a spitfire too, so um, and very knowledgeable. And she's from New York and has a great New York accent. So stay tuned for for uh, Miss Holtzman coming up in a little bit. Um, before I get to that, I'm going to talk a little bit about my perspective on the first public impeachment hearings with former, oh, currently actually, current ambassador Bill Taylor and uh, State Department expert on Ukraine, George Kent. And their testimony was very interesting, very informative and compelling, in my opinion. And obviously, Bill Taylor dropped a bit of a bombshell, some new information that we didn't know before concerning a phone call that one of his staffers was privy to, heard the president's voice allegedly asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. This was the day after the infamous Ukrainian president phone call on July 25th. So that information was new and it's significant. So I'm going to get into my thoughts on all of that in a minute. But first I want to say, um, I want to just talk a little bit briefly about my trip to Montgomery, Alabama earlier this week for the inauguration of the first African-American mayor of that city in that city's 200 year history. Now, anyone who knows American history knows that Montgomery has a very checkered history when it comes to race relations. I mean, that's the Deep South. Alabama has a a very ugly racial history. And Montgomery was also the seat of the Confederacy, the first Confederate White House, before Richmond became the capital of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis and his ilk was in Montgomery, you know? Um, And then Montgomery, most people remember for the Montgomery bus boycott, Dr. Martin Luther King's involvement, Rosa Parks. It was really the birthplace of the modern day civil rights movement. So the arc of history uh, of this city is really important in American history. And my friend, Stephen Reed, won his election Actually, it was a landslide. It wasn't even close. And I'm very, very, very proud of him. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to be there and witness history firsthand. Now, I'm from New Jersey. Anyone who listens to me on a regular basis or follows me on Twitter knows that I talk about being a Jersey girl all the time. And I'm biracial. So I I didn't really grow up with the racial dynamics that some of my other friends who grew up in the South had. The Deep South is not one of my favorite places. I've been there a couple times. Um, obviously, for you know, for obvious reasons, like I'm not really with the way things are in the Deep South. And um, 
Everyone's very nice, though. I will say that. And the food is great. But, you know, so there are things about the Deep South that creep me out. And from given the history and there's still a lot of there's still a lot of racism going on down there that is just different than growing up up in the Northeast. So I hadn't been to Alabama in probably, I don't know, over 20 years. And so to be there now as someone who has a lot more life experience, is a lot more well-versed in history, who gives speeches about Martin Luther King's legacy, uh, it was really meaningful. It was really meaningful to be there and to witness that and just and to observe how proud the black population was of their new mayor. Now, Stephen and I met last year during a group trip, a fact-finding trip to Israel. If you guys have been listening to me, you know that I went to Israel last year, and it was the most amazing trip, unbelievable, life-changing, really, and literally life-changing for people like Steve, because it was on that trip where he mentioned to our group, we were actually in Tiberias, which is a town right along the Sea of Galilee, and if you're into biblical history, you know the significance of all of that. And he said to us, you know, I'm, I'm really considering running for mayor. He was a probate judge at the time. And his father, Dr. Dr. Reed, is a civil rights icon in Alabama, especially in Montgomery. He's kind of like the John Lewis of Montgomery. So when he said that to us, our group was all it was, it was made up of a, of a bunch of um, elected local elected officials, different state officials from across the country. And um, they, everyone was very encouraging. They said, Steve, you got to do it. You know, we're claiming it right now. We prayed over him right there on the Sea of Galilee. And sure enough, less than a year later, most of us from that trip gathered together in Montgomery to witness his inauguration, which was just really cool. So I'm uh, congratulations to my, my friend, Stephen Lewis Reed. I think he's going to be a great mayor of Montgomery, Alabama. And it is certainly a new day for Montgomery. And I wish them the best. Uh, one other quick thing uh, while I was there, I mean, there's so much civil rights history. So I only got a chance to see a couple things because I was only there for 48 hours. But I did have an opportunity to visit the Peace and Justice Memorial, which is run by the Equal Justice Institute. The colloquial name for this memorial is the Lynching Memorial. And I've got to tell you, that was one of the most sobering experiences. Last year, when I was in Israel, I had a chance to go to the Holocaust Museum, which was really emotionally intense and sobering. And this is equally as intense and sobering. The ugly, ugly history of slavery, of lynching, of the domestic terrorism that that act was for for black people of color and black, black people in this country that legacy is a, is really a stain on this country's history and like i said i'm from new jersey so my family legacy my family history my family roots they don't trace back to the south my mother is german italian and my great grandparents emigrated here from europe on my mom's side like literally came through ellis island so we don't have that slavery history in our family. My father's from Guatemala. So I've never felt that connection to it. Uh, some other people now, my husband's family, my husband's from Brooklyn, but his family, they're from South Carolina. So, you know, I'm sure there's slavery in his family. We have, we, we need to do one of those ancestry things and find out. But 
for me, I didn't have the same personal connection to that legacy, that history. But I've become, I've, you know, as of late, I've been paying a lot more attention to this and I've been a little bit more inquisitive about these things and standing there in the midst of over 4,000 names. And those are just the people that they could document. We know that there were a lot more lynchings that just never were recorded or, you know, the, 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 the records were difficult to keep back then. But the 4,400 that they, that the Equal Justice Institute was able to document, they are all listed by county and state on these different, um, I don't know how do you explain them. They, 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 they're like metal boxes, they're rectangular boxes, and they're suspended in some places from the ceiling. Some touch the ground, some don't. And the way that they designed this, the way you walk through it, it it's, uh, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's just, it's intense. But everyone's name is there. And they also have different placards throughout the memorial listing some individuals and why they were lynched. So-and-so and his family lynched because they voted. Now, uh, this one was lynched because they protested violence against their family members. This woman was pregnant, was lynched with her sons because her husband, and her husband because he uttered an inappropriate word to a white woman. I mean, the list goes on and on for the way, just example after example of the awful terrorism imposed on black folks down in the South. And I, I, it's really hard to feel like those wrongs have been righted. And they also had a memorial for someone who I admire greatly, a black female journalist named Ida B. Wells. I talk about her a lot when I give speeches. And she, her claim to fame, well, there's a couple things, but she was one of the first people to really document the lynchings going on in the, in the 18, I think, 80s. And she she had to leave the South because people were trying to burn down her printing office where she wrote for, you know, where she she did her um, reporting from. She tried to publish a pamphlet, which she did talking about the lynchings and documenting them and, and how horrific they were and unjust, just the injustice of it all. They ended up running her out of the South and she went to Chicago. She also got involved in the women's suffrage movement. And but she was a tough cookie and she stood up for what was right. And it's voices like hers that were so important as far as, you know, the abolitionist movement and and the, uh, you know, women's suffrage and, and just trying to bring light to this horror of lynching. And um, yeah, Ida B. Wells, if you're interested ever about like badass women in history, she's one of them. And they had a memorial there for her, too. As part of it, they honored her. But if you're ever in Montgomery, Alabama, and I mean, you know, it's not Disney World. This is not going to be a feel-good experience. But you can. It's. I think it's important for people to see. This is history. This is real. Those are the facts. And to pay, um, to pay homage to those who suffered at the hands of that injustice, and be thankful that it does that. That'll never happen again, and that those days are over. But there's other injustices that go on in this world, and we can never minimize them. So. That's my experience. I also got to see the Dexter Avenue Church, the um, the first church where Martin Luther King was a pastor, is where he started his career. That was pretty cool. 
The Rosa Parks Museum is there as well. So a lot of history there in Montgomery. It was also freezing. The first day we got there, it was like 75 degrees, beautiful day. The next day, the day of the inauguration, it froze. The Arctic, the Arctic blast made it to the south. It was like 40 degrees and rainy and cold. We were free, freezing, <laughs> but it's all good. So that's my um, that's my my little bit about my trip to to Montgomery. So go and big shout out to the Equal Justice Institute and what a great job they did with the with the Peace and Justice Memorial. All right, let me talk now. That was depressing enough, but let's talk about impeachment. So. Um, Bill Taylor, uh, William Taylor, this is the guy who has some of the most unimpeachable credentials, right? West Point graduate, Vietnam War decorated veteran, and he has served as a diplomat, foreign service officer for 40 years. He was asked to come out of retirement by Secretary of State Pompeo to take over the Ukrainian ambassadorship after Giuliani and his minions ran out the other ambassador, Marie Yovanovitch, who will be testifying at the end of this week. Uh, I think her testimony is going to be pretty compelling also. The way she was mistreated is unbelievable. The intimidation, the, the lies, the smear campaign, completely unacceptable. And she, her, her testimony will be compelling also. Another example of the shadow diplomacy that was going on outside of official channels. And Bill Taylor, it, he's the one who in his transcripts, which were released, so we kind of had a sense of what he was going to say anyway, but it's a different thing when you're reading it versus the person in front of you in a hearing. He's the one who said that, uh, I think it's crazy that we're holding up military aid for Ukraine in exchange for political investigations against the political opponent, opponent for the president. This is nuts. He's also the one who who held who took copious notes. He's got notebooks full of documentation of interactions and meetings. So he's very well prepared. And um, if anyone who watched the hearing, I listened to it initially because I was flying back from Montgomery, and I so I couldn't see it. I was on, in the airport and I was on the plane, and then I missed about an hour and a half while I was in flight because I had no freaking Wi-Fi in this flight because it's a regional airport, regional plane, so no Wi-Fi. So I was dying because I missed the you know hour and a half. But I went back and watched most of it. Anyway, um, but listening to this guy, man, what a voice! He really has a career as a voiceover actor or like a documentarian narrator. This guy's voice was unbelievable. Perfect radio voice. Perfect. I could listen to him narrate the phone book. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Bill Taylor, he so his testimony, he he really gave a thorough history of the Ukraine issues with Russia and why this all matters. George Kent, who was the other the other person who testified with him, 27 years experience in the foreign service and he specialized in anti-corruption efforts and things like that. He was like a Wikipedia of of knowledge when it came to the players, the businesses, you know, this corrupt oligarch and what he was accused of and the charges. I mean, he was a wealth of knowledge. Both of them were. Both of them combined experience of like almost 80 years. 
And that was on full display. And I think they both did an excellent job of explaining, breaking down, if you were paying attention, right? I mean, most people didn't have enough time to sit there and watch this all day, but if you have a chance to watch it, watch it. But they broke down the context, why Ukraine is being used as a political football right now, like a geopolitical football between Russia and the United States. That's really what this is about. Ukraine is fighting for their democracy. They broke away. They used to be a Soviet satellite country. They've been trying to get their acts together with their own democracy for years now. And this, and Russia doesn't like it. Putin wants that territory back. And when he invaded Crimea against international law in 2014, that was the beginning of his attempts, his aggression uh, toward Ukraine. Got him kicked out of the G8. So... They are in a hot war as we speak right now. Real people are fighting for their sovereignty. And meanwhile, the president of the United States is messing around with the lethal aid that we that our Congress passed for them. It was passed by the Congress. Approved, passed, certified. He's using this to extort, shake down and bribe the Ukrainians in order to get some phony political investigation into Joe Biden and to also try to discredit the intelligence agencies who have unequivocally determined that Russia is responsible for meddling in our elections. This is insane. And it's a serious abuse of power. And my conversation with Elizabeth Holtzman coming up, she's going to explain that in more detail why we cannot allow this type of abuse of power to go, to go unaccounted for. Because that's what it is. This is worse than Watergate, worse than Bill Clinton. This is literally the president of the United States leveraging our goodwill and leveraging money and aid that the Congress, which is a different branch of government, right? Co-equal branch of government, leveraging that for his own personal political gain. This isn't open and shut case for abuse of power and it's bribery. Now I wasn't using those terms before because I wasn't sure they legally applied. But after talking to some of my legal experts, I realized that yes, I can use that. No more of this quid pro quo BS, okay? Enough of that. We're beyond that because not all quid pro quos are corrupt. But when you are trying to leverage something in exchange for something else with corrupt intent, it's bribery and extortion and a shakedown which is what Trump was engaged in. So I'm glad to see that Democrats and others have changed the language because the average person understands those terms. They don't know what the hell a quid pro quo is. Okay. <laughs> Some people do, but come on. It's not a term we use every day. So they both, Kent and Taylor, really made great cases to explain why this all matters, the significance of Russia and how, you know, all, all roads lead to Putin as always and how Russia benefits from this chaos. They benefit from the corruption in the Ukraine. They benefit from all of this. And again, you know, the, the, the bombshell information that everyone was trying to say, well, not everyone, let me stop that. The pro-Trump folks and the Republicans who acted like a bunch of jackasses as usual during the, during the committee hearing, being disruptive, rude, 
crying and whining about procedural things, all of that was just a distract because they cannot argue the facts. They can't. The only argument they had, and even that's dismissed, was the hearsay argument because neither Taylor or Kent had firsthand interaction with Trump during this whole thing. They weren't on the call. They were kind of on the periphery a little bit, but they talked to the people who had firsthand knowledge, like Sondland, Ambassador Sondland, who's testifying next week, and he's in some big shit trouble if he doesn't get his story straight because of the information Taylor said, the bombshell, about another one of his deputies was was at a dinner with Sondland the day after the phone call, the, the infamous July 25th phone call, right? Read the transcript, that phone call, that was on July 25th. Taylor said, which was new, that one of his staff members was at a dinner with Ambassador Sondland in Kiev. It's Kiev, by the way. I learned that, not Kiev. I grew up, I thought, it, you know, learning it was Kiev, but just like the Ukraine, which I try really hard not to say, and sometimes I slip and do. Those are old Soviet terms. Like that was what they, that's how they pronounced Kiev and the Ukraine, just like Czechoslovakia is now Czech Republic. So now that they're no longer under Soviet rule, they call themselves Kiev, the capital, and it's Ukraine. Something I learned yesterday. Anyway, so they overheard, the staffer overheard Sondland call the president and Trump, he could hear Trump's voice. Now we don't know yet because by the time this airs, we probably will know because the staffer is going to testify behind closed doors. We don't know if it was on speakerphone or what, but he was able to hear Trump's voice and Trump asked Sondland about the investigations. Well, obviously, naturally, he's talking about the request, right? The quid pro quo, the bribe, the shakedown request of, I need you to do me a favor though, which is a look into Biden. So when he hung up the phone, the staffer asked Sondland, so, you know, what's the president's position on Ukraine? What's, what's the story? He said that he's more concerned about the investigations with Biden than he is about overall policy with Ukraine. No shit. Isn't that what this is all about? So that was new information, and that's pretty significant. So then the AP today came out and said there was a second staffer who was a witness to this exact same phone call, and this staffer is also going to give their their testimony. So now you have two people with firsthand knowledge of this part of the of the of this scheme, they're going to testify to what they heard. Sondland never mentioned this, and he's already amended his uh, his testimony once. So, when he testifies next week, he better not lie, or he's going to get slapped with a perjury charge. So he holds a lot of cards here. Sondland's testimony next week is going to be pretty important. Close, to, we need to pay close attention to it thing about Sondland also is that Fiona Hill, who's another person who will be testifying next week, she's the one who worked directly with John Bolton when he was the national security advisor. She's another Ukrainian expert in the White House assigned to the National Security Council who was very alarmed at what was going on, especially with Sondland's behavior. She said in her testimony, we saw the, the, the transcripts of, that she worried that Sondland was so reckless in the way he behaved that he was a counterintelligence vulnerability. So most diplomats, when they're in hot zones like that, like Israel or, or China or Russia, Ukraine, places like that, they know 
that there's a lot of foreign intelligence surveillance going on. So there's certain protocols for how you communicate. I've got news for you. Calling the president of the United States on a non-secure cell phone in the middle of a freaking restaurant in Kiev is not the proper protocol. And more and more experts are coming out now, now that we know this call happened, saying like, WTF, is this guy serious? He doesn't know that that's like completely against the rules. And the chances are the Russians or somebody's intelligence agency picked up that call. Wonderful. That's just wonderful. So he, apparently he's done this more than once. He also, the Sondland, had a, a tendency to give out personal cell phone numbers. This is according to Fiona Hill. And she was very annoyed about that because, you know, she's a professional. She was like, he would give out her personal cell phone and John Bolton's personal cell phone. And so foreign dignitaries or diplomats would call or they'd show up at the White House and her personal cell phone is in a lockbox when she's in the White House. Like, that's also part of the protocol to avoid any kind of, you know, surveillance or hacking in. People have to block up their cell phones when they're in the White House or in the situation room or whatever. So she's like, people would show up at the White House claiming that Sondland said they were going to have a meeting and she knew nothing about it. So this Sondland is, is reckless. What do you expect? He's a donor. He was a hotel magnate. He doesn't know any shit about, you know, being a diplomat or, you know, international affairs like that. He donated a million dollars to the Trump inaugural and bought himself an ambassadorship which I suspect he's going to lose soon. <laughs> I can't believe he's still on the job. And so is Taylor and so is Kent. They're still on the job, which is a shock. But yeah, so now we've got two people, two witnesses to a phone call that places the president right in the middle of the scheme. The facts are pretty clear here, but Republicans continue to insist that it's, you know, where's the whistleblower and the whistleblower... Let me tell you something. That nonsense yesterday during the hearing, uh, talking about the whistleblower, where is he, is ridiculous. They were bitching and complaining about Taylor and Kent. Their information was only hearsay. This is hearsay. We're going to impeach a president over hearsay. But they're carping about the whistleblower. Well, didn't they claim the whistleblower wasn't on the call? Isn't the whistleblower the hearsay also? So which is it? Why do they give a shit what the whistleblower has to say? And it doesn't matter anyway, because what the whistleblower put in their report turned out to be really true. It was accurate. So this nonsense about all the whistleblower, it's just, again, it's just distraction, total distraction, red herring. The whistleblower's irrelevant. I've talked about this already in the podcast weeks before. So the Republicans, they're, I don't know who their general, um, not general counsel, they're the the counsel they were using to do the staff questioning. He was terrible. This Steve Castor, terrible. So I wonder moving forward, if the Republicans are going to make a switch, kind of like what happened with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings last year, the outside counsel they brought into question, Christy Blasey Ford was really ineffective with the first half and they got rid of her. And that's when Lindsey Graham stormed in and did his performance, which was out of control that single-handedly brought Kavanaugh's nomination back from the dead. Looks like Jim Jordan is going to, is taking up that attack dog role. They, uh, brought him over from oversight and allowed him to sit on the the intelligence committee so that he could be that attack dog. He just made an ass of himself, in my opinion, which is, you know, pretty much how they all behave. Devin Nunes, another one. God, he was just so ridiculous. 
in his in his t- he used his time to talk about conspiracy theories and going down dossier and and all kinds of nonsense debunked conspiracy theories that's what that's what these people are are hinging their defense on let's not forget the intelligence community has already unequivocally determined as did the Mueller report that the russians were solely responsible for the election meddling in 2016 not the ukrainians not some 400 pound guy in a basement in new jersey no it was the damn Russians, and and any if anyone ever bothers to read volume one of the Mueller report, they will see it spelled out clear as day. So, they're but they don't have any other defense. They cannot defend the facts because they're really damning against Trump. Really damning. Another thing, they, this is pay attention. So Republicans keep saying this is what I want you to pay attention to when you're watching and listening to these hearings and the way that the Republicans question the witnesses. They keep repeating that it, it couldn't be it couldn't have been a bribe. It couldn't have been corrupt in, with corrupt intent. I mean, the Ukrainians ended up getting their their lethal aid. They got what they needed. They only got that aid released two days after the whistleblower report went public. Not the contents, the fact that it existed. That's why the aid was finally released. They got caught because the whistleblower blew the whistle. That's number one. Number two. <clears throat> The idea that the president, and I've said this before, that the president was all about, it was all about corruption. And this was a legitimate ask. It was a legitimate ask. We didn't want to give away all this money and aid until we knew that Ukraine was following their anti-corruption laws or whatever. That's bullshit too. And I mentioned this last week, the Pentagon already certified that they were in compliance, which was congressionally mandated. After Congress approved the money, there had to be a certification process. There had to be due diligence, due diligence to make sure that the money was not going to Ukraine if they weren't doing things to correct some corruption. They had a new election. You got a new president. The Pentagon in May and June said, yep, they're clear for the money. So for those months where that money was held up, Ukrainians were dying on the front lines in eastern Ukraine fighting Russia. Number three, they kept trying, Republicans kept trying to say that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, never raised any concerns. He never said that he was pressured. He never questioned where the, where the money was in the, in the aid, the weapons and things. He never, he never did this. But a key point to remember is that he couldn't. They are reliant on the United States' help to protect them from Russia, to give them what they need to fight Russia. So if your number one interest is protecting your country and the United States is your benefactor, what is he going to do? He's a newly elected president. Everyone knows that Trump is a lunatic and in the pocket of Russia. They really needed the legitimacy and leverage of having the United States backing as they go into negotiations with Russia to try to stop this war that's been going on for five years. And Trump knew that. And so that's why it's even more nefarious that they would hold up this this aid. There's no good reason for it other than an abuse of power and using Ukraine and the people. These are real people living their lives under the shadow of Russian aggression. Thinking the United States is their ally helping them, right? That's at least how we used to be. So 
that's bullshit that just because Zelensky didn't publicly say anything, he was prepared to go on CNN and announce these bogus investigations just to placate Trump to get the money once they found out. So, come on. You know how that goes. You can't bite the hand that feeds you, which is the position that Zelensky was in. So, of course, he wasn't going to publicly challenge the United States. But I suspect we'll hear more that his deputies and other people were concerned once they realized, holy shit, this, this, this aid's not coming? Unless we do, we open an investigation into... A, a, a political rival of the president of the United States. Oh my God. They had enough sense. that They knew they didn't want to get in the middle of domestic political squabbles in the U S. So those are the three main issues that, that the Republicans are trying to use as a defense, but they all fall apart rather quickly. The hearsay thing is a bunch of BS because the people who were also firsthand witnesses, the white house is trying to block from testifying. John Bolton his, his deputy, Kupperman, they're in litigation right now to find out if they have to comply with this congressional subpoena and others. So if everything was so perfect, why all the obfuscation? And I'll tell you what, John Bolton's a wild card in this thing. He didn't leave the White House very happy. He's disgruntled. He was aware of what's going on. He is no friend of Russia's. He's an old school Reagan hawk when it comes to that. And he's the one who said that he didn't want to be in the middle of this drug deal, whatever Mulvaney and Giuliani were cooking up. So I suspect if John Bolton ever does testify, he could be a wild card. <laughs> but we'll see. Still, we're still waiting on the judge to rule on what's happening with that. So, um, I, you know, I, one other quick thing before I bring in my conversation with a uh, former former Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman, who was there during the uh, Nixon impeachment. One last thing about just something else to pay attention to. Fox News and other places, they are promoting these conspiracy theories, as I said, and all trying to trying to distract with all kinds of crap. And you may hear the names Joe Gigenova and Victoria Townsend, who is his wife. They're a husband and wife legal team. And they are involved in some pretty shady shit. They've taken money. They re- right now they're representing one of the dirtiest Russian oligarchs. His name is Dmitry Ferdish, and he's based in Vienna. He's trying to fight extradition to the United States on bribery and corruption charges. And he hired them. What a coincidence. They're close with Trump and Giuliani and that whole crew. They're also close with Igor Fruman. Unless Lev Parnas, frickin' frack, who got arrested boarding a plane with a one-way flight to where? Vienna. Before the feds nabbed them and brought them back. So I call them frickin' frack. Giuliani's frickin' frack. Yeah, those guys. They're all in cahoots with these lawyers. They also represent John Solomon, who's another um, reporter who's, who's pushed the Ukraine conspiracy theories against Biden and other things. He also is represented by DeGeneva and Townsend. They're bad news. And they've take they they you just need to follow the money. And I've mentioned before ProPublica, they have a, a great podcast called Trump Inc. Their their latest is about that following the money and and how dirty that money is and um, their role in pushing the conspiracy theories. It's so incestuous and just so corrupt 
my God. So don't believe anything they say. They have an agenda. They're working for the bad guys. On that note, time to bring in former Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman. Let's talk a little Watergate and see the comparisons to what happened then, the way that the Democrats are running things and how Republicans reacted. See the compare and contrast from then to now. someone on who is not only a, a trailblazer, uh, she accomplished amazing things as a woman of Congress, the youngest woman of Congress elected at the time, but uh, Elizabeth Holtzman was also on the Judiciary Committee that voted to impeach Nixon. And um, given the climate that we're in, I thought her perspective on what's going on with the impeachment process would be uh, a valuable one. So uh, welcome, Ms. Holtzman. I appreciate you joining me for Honestly Speaking with Tara. Well, thank you very much for having me. So um, given your history and the seat at the table you literally had during the Watergate hearings, when you're looking at what's happening right now, do you feel that Democrats are handling this process well? Have they made any mistakes? Well, it's a, it's a difficult question to know the answer to because we don't know what the outcome is. I think that what we see now is um, behavior that's so dangerous and so threatening to our democracy from the president that uh, the Democrats, I think, are, are doing are, – are proceeding in a fair and and uh, and appropriate manner. Uh, I think th- they've now begun to release the transcripts. We knew that they would never have uh, concealed the key witnesses from the public. That the public had to know what was going on. Sure. So I think the process that's going on before the Intelligence Committee and the other two committees is a basically a reasonable process. I think there was a, it was behind closed doors basically to make sure that witnesses didn't compare information and, and um, shape their testimony to fit one another. So that was, that's very important because you want to try to get honest testimony. Uh, but now the witnesses, the transcripts will be made public, the public will get a chance to see them, and they'll get a chance, more importantly, to see the witnesses on TV to assess their sincerity in the face of cross-examination, their credibility, and that's vital. That's what happened in Watergate. Uh, we didn't do it in the House of Representatives. That was done by the Senate Select Watergate Committee, but it's very important for the public to see the witnesses, to get a sense viscerally of what is at stake and what's happening. Um, that didn't happen with the Mueller investigation because it was behind closed doors. It was a grand jury investigation, and the Congress at that time, controlled by the Republicans, were very careful to have closed-door hearings. Right. So no one ever heard Jared Kushner testify. No one ever heard Donald Trump testify in person. I mean, I think that's one of the things that ought to be pointed out when the when the Republicans were in charge. It was all behind closed doors. Well, they seem to have short and, memories uh, when it comes to that. Yeah, it wasn't well, only for Mueller, I, I, Benghazi and other things, and now they're carping about everything secret and behind closed doors when those were the rules when they were around. So it seems disingenuous to me to argue process now. 
Right. I, well, I think the process has to be fair, and the American people have to think the process is right. fair, and it has to be fair. But that was the the uh, behind closed doors is going to be a temporary pro, a temporary way of handling the matter until uh, they c- could have public hearings when they basically had the testimony recorded, and then they could have public hearings, and the American people could make the decision. That's going to happen. I guess what what really troubles me a bit is how. The Mueller investigation kind of just fizzled in a way, and that was really vital. And I don't think most Americans really understand what the Mueller report found. Uh, I, I think uh, partly Mueller himself is to blame. I don't know whether he was just too naive and submitted a report in a way that was easily um, um, uh, perverted, subverted by the attorney general, I think improperly, or what happened. But I think that the American people somehow have to be um, given, communicated the contents of that report because it's very, very, very important. I mean, what we see in in Ukraine, what I call Ukraine Gate, is a president basically saying that he can use the awesome powers of the United States, its financial powers, its prestige, to force and bully a small country, a fragile democracy, uh, into getting involved in domestic politics and interfering in a U.S. campaign for the president's personal gain and political gain. I mean, that's about as crude and misuse of force, abuse of power, as we can see. And, you know, and and the problem is, if the president can do it, try to force the outcome of an election uh, by bullying Ukraine, using the powers office for that, well, why can't he do it on other things? Why can't he say, well, you know, you're going to be a critic of mine? I'm going to stop benefits from coming to you. That's what happened in Watergate. Let's just go right back to Watergate where the president of the United States said, and this was part of the Nixon impeachment articles. One of the articles was that Richard Nixon had identified political enemies. These were people who opposed his position on the war in Vietnam or supported George McGovern, his political opponent. And he went to IRS and he said, hey, IRS, you audit those people. You harass those people. He used the power of the government. He wanted to do that. He wanted to use the power of the government to harass his political opponents. It's now, IRS stood up. Right. Thank God. Yeah, IRS stood up and said, no, we haven't seen people in his administration at that level. The head of IRS, the commissioner of IRS, the secretary of the Treasury, they said, no, hell no. We haven't seen that here in this administration. We've seen some lower-level people say no. We've seen them having to resign for the most part if they did say no. But but here you had a president doing that, and that was an article of impeachment. And, and the impeachment articles against Richard Nixon and that process is the gold standard. No one ever accused it of being unfair or improper or having articles that weren't appropriate. So if the president can do that, can go after his political opponents using the power of the government or use the government to go after his political opponents, you know, that's where that's the end of our democracy if we let that go forward. Because where does that stop? They're going to take every Democrat, enroll Democrat and say, uh, 
by the way, you're a registered Democrat. You can't have Social Security. Or suppose the Democrats did that to the Republicans. Oh, you can't get food stamps. You can't get housing benefits. You can't get disaster aid. You can't get this. Well, you, well you, where are we going as a country? Well, it's interesting that you bring that point up because I don't think that point's been made enough that if we allow this to go without consequence, where does it stop for Donald Trump's political retribution against people he feels as though were unfair to him. It's pretty scary. Look at what he did with disaster relief. You brought that up with Puerto Rico and, you know, right. and, and places like that where money wasn't going and it was held up because he had a grudge against the mayor of San Juan. I mean, these are things that the president of the United States cannot engage in. That kind of gross misconduct has to be held to account, which is why the founding fathers right. put in impeachment. Um, you know, you talked about going up, also going after political uh, enemies. We just saw the, the transcript released of Ambassador Yovanovitch, who said that she mm-hmm. was basically threatened and, you know, warned that her security was at risk, all because of, you know, Donald Trump's cronies didn't like the fact that she was actually standing up to corruption in Ukraine and she was standing in the way of whatever corrupt, um, uh, you know, uh, actions they were looking to do. So they got rid of her. You can't tell me that Donald Trump didn't know, you know, that this wasn't at his instruction. I mean, it just seems that the the evidence is piling up. But yet, unlike in Watergate, Republicans eventually came around because the evidence was so overwhelming. I don't know if I see that happening in this case. Do, do you? I mean, there's a lot of evidence now that the president engaged in impeachable behavior. But these Republicans are just doubling down. Well, I think that. That's why it's it's incumbent on the Democrats to make the case clearly, convincingly, fairly mm-hmm. to the American people about what happened to bring the witnesses forward, let them be cross-examined, let them be questioned, let the American people kick the tires, so to speak, and understand the significance. I mean, not only do they have to understand, not only should they be exposed to exactly what happened, but they need to understand the significance. Why is it an impeachable offense for the president of the United States to bully a small country to interfere in democratic politics? Why is it uh, an impeachable offense to withhold military aid to win an election? What does this really mean about our democracy? And I think the the thing that's really uh, sort of, in, in a way, almost the scariest part of this is Trump's statement that basically he's not going to cooperate with the impeachment because it's not an impeachment to his liking. Well, the framers never intended the president to like an impeachment. They intended the impeachment to remove a president who was a danger to the country to protect the democracy. So if the president says, well, I don't like the impeachment, so I'm not going to cooperate, that is a total and direct assault on the Constitution of the United States and the safety valve that the framers um, developed to protect our democracy. There was a big debate. It wasn't the longest debate in the in, in framing the Constitution, but in Philadelphia, they came around, and I, I, I've written several books on this subject. My right. latest is called The Case Against Impeaching Correct. Trump. Yep. So I had, to, I had to study and read, actually read, the debates on the floor of the convention in Philadelphia when they were writing the Constitution. And people said, well, you know, we have to worry about what happens if a president acts like a king and thinks he's above the rule of law or above the uh, above everybody else. 
And some yes, people said, yeah, don't worry about Mason. it. We have. A- right. George Mason. And yeah. They had that argument. No, he didn't say that. He It was others who said, why don't we. It, there were people who said, yeah, what do we ha- we have to be afraid of a president? And then there were people who came back and said, well, we have elections. What do we ha- what do we need impeachment for? Every four years we have an election. So that'll be the safety valve. valve. We'll be able to get rid of a president who is a danger to the country every four years. But that argument didn't win out because George Mason from Virginia and others said, wait a minute, the president has such awesome powers that he can undermine our democracy. He can threaten the rule of law. He can invade the liberties of Americans before there's an election. So we can't just rely on elections to protect our democracy. We have to have the power of impeachment. That was a central argument and a vote on the floor of the convention in Philadelphia. So they, this impeachment power is there not to protect Congress. They fought about where the power should be. Should it be Supreme Court, this, that. But they finally put it in the hands of Congress. The issue wasn't to give Congress the power. The issue was, how do we use our system of checks and balances to protect our democracy against a president who's run amok? That's, that was it. And that's what we see now. And we see it. Ukraine gate makes it crystal clear. But we've seen it in other ways. We've seen it as explained in the Mueller report. Of course, that hasn't been properly explained to the American people no. yet. And we've seen it in other, in other conduct that he's, he's engaged in. So that's the responsibility of the Americans in Congress. Make this plain to the American people and the press. It's everyone's responsibility who's in a position to communicate, to tell that story in a simple way, in a clear way. And I, to the American people. A hundred percent. I come from a political communications background, so it's very frustrating for me when these messages get so muddied and they're unclear and they're not simple. I always approach difficult issues like that and try to synthesize them into why would the American people care and why does this matter? How does it affect them? Right. Why should they care? And I, I sometimes right. I feel like because politicians get caught up in minutia and different things. They, they lose sight of that simplicity. And I, I agree with you 100%. This has to be made clear, and people have to understand why this is such a threat to our democracy moving forward. Could you imagine four more years of Donald Trump without the prospect of getting elected again, where he has zero guardrails whatsoever um, stopping him from doing God knows what? And But people aren't getting that. And you're 100% right about the Mueller report. That Bill Barr, that attorney general of ours, is a disgrace, in my opinion, and is derelict in his duty being used to manipulate the American public um, to, to benefit Donald Trump personally. He went out there and completely misrepresented what was in the Mueller report, and that set the narrative. And I think that Robert yeah. Mueller was, I don't know if it was naive, I just think that his deference to the office of the presidency and certain traditions in this country was so great that it became an impediment because he underestimated just how duplicitous this president would be. Well, I think that that's, I'm not disagreeing with you, but there was a deeper problem as well. When I I was one of the authors of the special prosecutor law, Mm -hmm. and one of the purposes of that law, and it came directly out of Watergate to avoid having another situation where the president's attorney general would run the show, a political process. So we wrote the special prosecutor law basically to take the attorney general 
out of the process. And during, as a result of the effort to to impeach Clinton, uh, the Clinton Clintonites uh, rewrote the law to put the attorney general back in. Well, the attorney general has no business being there except to the extent that's constitutionally required, which is a very small little piece of it. I wrote the law. It was uh, attacked in the challenge in the Supreme Court, and the law's constitutionality was upheld. So, you know, the fact of the matter is the attorney general, a political appointee close to the president of the United States, has no business mm-hmm. overseeing a special prosecutor's report. Um, we put the we put the responsibility in the hands of judges. That law could have been fine tuned and improved. There's no question about it. It was a really a law of first impression, and it didn't work perfectly. It gave us <laughs> Kenneth Starr. Right. I, I I admit that we we didn't foresee that problem, but we could have improved it. So, but putting it back in the hands of the attorney general does not solve the problem. It just restores the basic problem of political control over the work of the special of the special prosecutor. And that's that's really the, the basic problem here. So that's there are going to be a lot of reforms if Donald Trump is removed or is not our next president. I hope so. A lot of reforms coming out of this. Yes. And one of it has to be to take the attorney general back out of the process so that when a special prosecutor writes that report, that report can go to Congress unhindered and and ultimately to the American people. I mean, listen, the worst thing that happened, if you compare the situations, what happened with the Clinton, uh, the Star report was, yes, it was slanderous and smearing and ugly and it wasn't what a, a special prosecutor should have written. But in the end, what damage did it do? We look now at this special prosecutor's report, which was subverted and its message distorted, Mm -hmm. and that may leave us with a president in charge who will continue those abuses. So that's a much greater danger. I I mean, you know, nobody likes a, uh, you know, a report that's smutty and improper and the like, but that's much more dangerous. It's much more dangerous to have a president stay in power than to have a bad report. Absolutely. Um, When you were during Watergate days and when you were on the Judiciary Committee and you were talking earlier about the fairness of the process, you talk in your book about um, how the Democrats who are in charge recognize that they couldn't just have it look like a partisan attack coming from all Democrats. Correct. Right. So you had Republicans that, you know, were on the committee. Did those Republicans actively work to to subvert the process the way we're seeing some of them now? Some of them did. But Rodina was very was really smart. I would have to say that. And some of us kind of, (laughs) yeah, some of us kind of uh, were a little, you know, we said, why is he, why is he bending over backwards all the time to be fair? And well, we need to go faster. We need to do this or that. But he was completely right. And I'll tell you some of the things he did from the get go that were really, really, really important. He picked as the counsel for our impeachment inquiry, a Republican. Mm-hmm. The Democratic majority picked a Republican counsel for our impeachment. Just think of the message that sent. I mean, it's not the world's most earth-shattering message, but it says, listen, we're trying to be fair, and we're trying to get a great, respected lawyer in charge. doesn't matter if the person's Republican or Democratic. We want 
a respected lawyer. And that's what happened. So the D's had a Republican council, and of course the Republicans picked a Republican council. (laughs) We had two Republicans running the show. the Republicans, it was interesting, you know, the the, the statement is that, you know, the Republicans attacking the process um, uh, that the that the uh, House voted for. But, you know, there was basically the same process in the House Judiciary Committee where the Republicans could request witnesses, but the Democrats could overrule right, exactly. them. But, you know, but the Republicans made legitimate requests. Rodino didn't think and the rest of us didn't think that we needed to hear John Dean or the rest of those people because they had already been seen in the Senate Watergate Committee. But the Republicans wanted them to come. This was all behind closed doors, by the way. But the Republicans wanted them. And Rodino said, you know, they want them. It's a legitimate request. It wasn't designed to subvert the process or destroy the process. They had a right to hear these witnesses. These are critical witnesses. And they wanted to kick the tires. So he let them do that. They had all the witnesses they wanted. So I think that... It didn't work out too well for them, though. Right when (laughs) it didn't work out well for the president, right? Well, because the Republicans and by being fair in the process, Rodino took a lot of the anger away, so people couldn't fight him on the process, they fought him on the facts, and that's much harder fight. Well, that's much harder fight. Well, sure, and that's but uh, today they they know that. Well, I don't know, yeah. I don't know the, the the dynamics in the in the House of Representatives the way I did then. I mean, I don't want to say that every Republican was in favor of impeachment. In fact, none of them came out in favor of impeachment. None of the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee came out in favor of impeachment, although we started our work in the end of October. Uh, none of them came out until just days before, and this is in July, right. days before we started our debate. It was so the tapes, they weren't right? persuaded right away. Sorry? That was because of the tapes. What did you say? The tapes, right? Not, not, no. The, the, uh, when we voted on the articles of impeachment, seven Republicans voted with us on the second article, six on the first, and, and only one on the third. So, but we had some Republicans. It wasn't, it was about 30% of the Republicans, but we had some Republicans, so the process was definitely bipartisan. The smoking gun tape, which showed indisputably that Nixon orchestrated the cover up from basically from its inception, mm-hmm. that didn't come out till after our vote. And once it came out, then oh. the holdout Republicans said, yes, we're all for impeachment. And that's why Nixon resigned, because right. when you had the whole Judiciary yeah. Committee, yeah. When you had the whole Judiciary Committee, including the most conservative Republicans, including the president's most vicious and virulent defenders, saying that they were for impeachment, there was no hope. I mean, there was no way that he was not going to be impeached by the House and removed by the Senate. Right. So the handwriting was on the wall. So the tape was critical to getting unanimity, but it wasn't critical at the outset to getting the seven Republicans who joined with us. And partly they joined with us because... Because also, guess who wrote the articles of impeachment? It was the Southern Democrats Mm. 
wait a minute, I forgot about them. In addition to Republicans, we had Southern Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee whose districts were more pro-Nixon than most of the Republicans' districts. Those districts probably today are represented by Republicans. They all voted for impeachment. It was a very difficult vote for them. So they, plus the moderate Republicans, basically wrote the articles of impeachment. And, and Rodino let them do that. Why? Because he wanted the biggest possible buy-in for the articles of impeachment that we could get, and that's what happened. And that was very impressive to the American people because they saw that this was a process that was a fair process and inclusive. I mean, obviously it wasn't inclusive everybody. I mean, we had 70% of the Republicans not supporting us, but we had 30% who said yes, and that was very important. So I think uh, now it may be that the Republicans then were more open-minded, the Southern Democrats were more open-minded, or maybe they were more courageous. For them, it was all a, a difficult vote. I'm not saying it was easy. But, you know, they kept an open mind. And I, it was for me, it wasn't a difficult vote politically. Uh, but for them, it was a difficult vote politically, but they took it. And, I, you know, I just hope that we see the same kind of evidence fairly presented, thorough, solid, convincing evidence presented to the American people and the significance of which is explained to them. And I'm hoping that they will be able to begin to persuade some of their members of Congress and say, listen, you know, we don't want a government like this. We don't want a president who bullies a foreign country to win an election. If the president can't win the election, by persuading the American people that he's the most deserving, then he doesn't deserve to win. That's how the system should work. Right. That's true. But you also said that holding Nixon accountable um, made America a better nation. Yes. And unquestionably, I don't I don't disagree. And I think that um, current Congressman Justin Amash made a really good case when he decided to support impeachment. And then eventually he left the Republican Party because he was just sick of the way they were handling this and defending Trump. But he made the point that he wasn't concerned about impeachment being used too often. He was concerned about impeachment not being used enough because otherwise, if this, if like to your point, if the behavior we see now is not impeachable, whatever will be. And... Right. And yeah. And the people who say that impeachment is too divisive, I just want to remind people because you know, most Americans probably weren't even born when Watergate took place. But when the House Judiciary Committee voted for the articles of impeachment, the support among the American people was overwhelming. And I have to remind people that unlike Trump, Nixon was very popular. Right. Trump won. Lost, yeah. Nixon won in one of the largest landslides in American history. Trump lost the popular vote and he was the electoral college wasn't that close it was, you know, it was relatively close too it was. but but nixon won by a landslide so the american people had to change their minds about him that was a big big undertaking they respected him they voted for him they had supported him and yet in the end they were willing to say more important than a president, more important than a political party, is our constitution and the rule of law. And we came together as a people because Republican or Democrat, we recognize that as a nation, the most important thing to us was our constitution and the rule of law. And if we can't unite on that, then I'm worried for our democracy. But I'm hopeful that the American people will realize that what's made us 
great in the past and continues to make us a great nation, imperfect in many ways, but great is that we have a constitution and a democracy and a rule of law. And the minute we start fooling around with that and cutting corners on that and allowing a president to abuse his powers to win elections and use the power of the government overseas and so forth, then we are going down the road to to ending our democracy. And that's not what we ought to be doing. I mean, it's pretty amazing. We've had one of the longest, if not the longest democracies in the history of the world. Yep. What are we going to do with it now? What are we going to hand on to our children and our grandchildren? What kind of country? In Watergate, the American people, even though most of them had supported Nixon in the uh, election, said, we have to do what's right for our democracy, not what's right for the president and not what's right for the party. We're doing our country and our constitution comes first. And I hope the American people and I believe the American people will understand that those are the stakes now. And if we all stand up for that, then we are reaffirming something that unites us and doesn't divide us. Yes, we may be different. We may have a difference on the budget deficit or right, but it's bigger uh, climate now. control. Right. But our democracy is the bedrock of what makes us as a nation, keeps us going as a nation. And we have to be willing to stand up for it. In our final minutes, I have two more questions for you. Do you think that uh, Nixon would have still been impeached if Fox News was around? Uh, I hope so. I wonder. Because of, well, remember, maybe people didn't need Fox News. Maybe they didn't have Fox News to persuade them the other way, but they had already voted for Nixon, the people who watched the hearings. And millions, most Americans watch those hearings. They made up their own minds. But they also And even have... the people who watch Fox True. will see those hearings too. I hope and I hope yes. so. I'm worried about that because I, I just feel the indoctrination that is coming out of Fox News and conservative talk radio, the just the blatant dishonesty and manipulation of facts. I mean, they're just lying about things that are factually in front of you. And the president keeps trying to lay the foundation to not believe what you actually see and hear. I, I worry, I wonder that if the same um, media environment that we have today were around during Nixon, if Nixon would have been able to weather Watergate. I just think it's an interesting well, intellectual exercise. <laughs> yeah, but you can't give up on the on oh, the hope that the American people <laughs> that the American people will look at the facts as they're presented. Those hearings, I'm sure Fox News will show those hearings as well. People can make up their own minds when they see the witnesses. I agree. And that's going to be the important thing. No, they will I be able so. to make up their own minds. Yes. And yeah. so that's what is terrified. Listen, if, if Trump knew he was going to win, why would he act this way? Of He's course. terrified. He is terrified. And, and if he if the, everything was so perfect and he had nothing to hide, he wouldn't be behaving this way. They wouldn't be stopping witnesses. Correct. They wouldn't be doing everything they can to uh, to, to to thwart what's going on if, if they Correct. want true transparency, obviously. Right. Um, what, my, my final question. What Trump is doing yeah. is just like the Watergate cover-up. Yes. This effort to stop witnesses, to shut down the impeachment effort, to, to high, is, is a major cover-up, and the American people shouldn't tolerate it. Um, and, you, and it's interesting, because in your book, you wrote that in 2018, before we had the full Mueller report, before this Ukraine disaster, and you still felt as though that the president's behavior, even then, 
rose to the level of impeachable offenses. And that's outside of everything that we have, we see going on now that we know factually, which is pretty remarkable. And, and I encourage people to read your book because you, you lay out uh, really the constitutional reasoning behind it, um, especially the, the, the chapter where you talk about great and dangerous offenses, where you don't need a criminal of act, but the abuse of power and all those other things are, are enough. And that's what our founding fathers wanted. Uh, and, and my, my final question to you, because I have you, and I think it's uh, amazing, especially for what you did as, as a woman member of Congress. Um, you took down a titan, a 50-year incumbent uh, as a Democrat in New York, which is pretty amazing. Um, but you were also the first woman DA in New York City in the 80s. Um, you had to have worked with Rudy Giuliani. Did you have any any interaction with him? And if so, are you shocked at his behavior now? Well, um, he wasn't quite this way when I had to deal with him, but I would say not all of my dealings with him when I was DA were uh, perfect. <laughs> but the fact, uh, but how he's behaving now is is really disgraceful and sad. And um, you know, he's what can what else can you say? I mean. Uh, I think it should, that speaks for itself. Yeah. Well, that seems to be the sentiment among people who have known Rudy Giuliani for a long time, that uh, they just kind of shake their heads and, and, and disbelief that it's gotten to where it's gotten. And it is sad. To go from America's mayor to this, despite his flaws before, this is something else. Um, former Congresswoman Liz Holtzman, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, I could talk to you for hours cause, about your experiences, especially in Congress, and uh, but I won't because your time is valuable, and I appreciate you <laughs> spending that time with me and explaining to my listeners why they should care, and the comparisons to Watergate are really uncanny in a lot of ways. So know your history, folks. Liz Holtzman, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Again, big thank you to Elizabeth Holtzman for her insight. And pretty, pretty interesting stuff, right? I, I love the, the history and just being able to talk to people who are actually there for stuff. So I really appreciated our conversation. Before I close, I'll, um, a little feel-good stuff. This week, I wanted to dedicate it to veterans because Veterans Day just passed, and it's always important to honor those who served. So I wanted to talk about some charities that are doing great work with veterans because I know people who listen to this podcast, they're always asking me what they can do or how they can help. So military.com has a great uh, resource where they list 10 wounded veteran charities that are having really big impacts. So I was going to list them, and they're all highly rated by Charity Navigator, so they are reliable um, charities. And if you ever question, you can always go to Charity Navigator. I think it's .com or .org. Charity Navigator, if you ever want to look up a, um, a nonprofit organization or a charity, they rate them. They, they, they vet them to make sure that they're legit. So here are some of the, some of the uh, organizations that they list the Gary Sinise Foundation. Y'all may remember Gary Sinise from Forrest Gump. He was Lieutenant Dan. And since that role, he has really dedicated his life to philanthropic efforts to help veterans. And he's done amazing work. So the Gary Sinise Foundation, they, uh, they're, they're one to check out if you want to support them. Semper Fi Fund, 
they uh, focus on uh, they're a group of military spouses at Camp Pendleton. That's where it started in 2003. And now they've gone national and they provide direct financial assistance and vital programming for combat wounded, critically ill and catastrophically injured service members and their families during the hospitalization and recovery, which is really, really important. Uh, The Gary Sinise Foundation, I didn't mention what they do. They actually do outreach and they support um, different aspects of of getting service members off the ground. They they build houses. They they do a lot of amazing stuff. So they um, that's the Sinise, the Gary Sinise Foundation, Semper Fi Fund, Special Operations Warfare Foundation. They provide assistance to the special ops community. So that's the Navy SEALs, Delta, Green Berets, the the, the special forces guys. One of my friends, um, her husband was wounded. He was Delta. They've been very supportive. He's blind. It's been going on almost two, eight years now. But they were really, really supportive in the beginning when he was first wounded. So Special Operations Warrior Foundation. There's the Fisher House Foundation. They help um, provide housing. They build comfort homes for wounded veterans and their families free of charge. Uh, that's a great organization, actually, as well. They're all really good ones. One of my favorites, the Freedom Service Dogs of America. So um, I come from a family of animal lovers, especially dogs, and they uh, they take shelter animals and they transform them into custom-trained service dogs for wounded veterans. Amazing, great for the veterans, great for the dogs. Freedom Service Dogs of America. If you're into that, support them. Operation Second Chance, they um, they provide support for wounded veterans at Walter Reed in the DC area. And what they do is that they help them with transition back into civilian life or active duty after their injury, which can be hard. It can take a really, you know, big mental toll on people. You know, you used to be a certain way, now you have limitations. So that kind of support to transition back into civilian life or even back into active duty, if they're fortunate enough to do that, is so important. They help with um, modification of housing to, to accommodate the disabled veterans and, and they assist wounded family caregivers, which is so important too. So that's another good one. And then lastly is Hope for Warriors. And they are another... Um, support organization that was founded by military families at Camp Lejeune. And they're really there to help people with issues of, uh, you know, suicide prevention, other support groups for families, the veterans themselves, health and wellness, peer engagement, things like that to integrate them back into society after, after they've been um, wounded. So couple of organizations that are really, really good doing great things for our veterans. And you can go to military.com. That's another great resource and has them all listed there as well. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining me. I will see you next week. It'll be um, after Gordon Sondland's testimony so I can can pontificate about how that went because I suspect it's going to be rather interesting. So stay tuned for next week. Thanks for listening.